Can anyone here recall how many members of his presidential staff Donald Trump has now sacked? I've, I've lost count. Jeremy Corbyn has just had to dump a member of his shadow cabinet because he made comments which were not in line with official party policy. Theresa May's lost a few cabinet members along the way too, hasn't she? Just to keep the balance. And since Nigel Farage stepped down as leader of UKIP, well, they just seem to have been in total disarray. Now, such toings and froings are commonplace in the world of politics and other places too. Whenever you have a group of people who come together with a common aim, you suddenly realise it's not quite as common as we thought and there are all kinds of personal beliefs and agendas and preferences bubbling away under the surface. It doesn't take too long for fractures and fault lines begin, beginning to appear because their agenda isn't exactly the same and individual priorities start to come to the surface. And of course, all of those same kinds of issues threaten local churches and they threaten our unity, as has all been too evident on the island of Crete. And if you've any knowledge at all of church history, whether you can go back over the many centuries or whether you just go back several decades here in Liverpool. You don't need to look any further than that uh, to know that these things continue to be issues that can plague churches. As Paul closes his letter to Paul, I want to just highlight three areas that Paul mentions in these closing verses. Things which of course, have very specific reference to the situation that Titus finds himself in on the island of Crete. But they're common threats which come to all churches. They're issues that all churches have to deal with. They're problems that all churches have. Because they're problems that are common to people. And so as Titus is reading these final words, and we have the opportunity to kind of looking over his shoulder and reading with him what Paul has written, uh, we'd be very foolish to ignore what the Apostle lays down for Titus in these final verses in his letter. Some final priorities that aren't new. Paul's mentioned these things as he's made his way through this short letter. Uh, but he finds it necessary just to just to flag up one or two things one final time. So it's worth us taking note of them as the letter closes. Well, well, we'll pick up where we left off this morning, which is, we finish verse 8, so we're at verse 9. Avoid foolish disputes. No disputes. Sounds kind of obvious, doesn't it? <laughs> But it's not always that simple. It's not always that easy. Paul's just have exhorted them at the end of verse 8 to those things which are good and profitable. Now he exhorts them to stay away from those things, the end of verse 9, which are useless and unprofitable. Because churches can get caught up in things which are useless and unprofitable. 
Now, the, the theme of things that are good is uh, very large in this letter. Uh, it's something that's mentioned on a number of occasions. In the opening chapter at verse 8, uh, those who are to be considered for serving as elders in the church are, amongst other things, are to be lovers of what is good. And in verse 16, those who are false teachers and who have been teaching error, they've disqualified themselves for every good work. These are people who are not fitting for that which is good. Chapter 2 and verse 3. For the women, teachers of good things. Verse 7. Be a pattern of good works. Verse 14. Zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1. Ready for every good work. Now, you've got one of two options here. You can read all of these things and say, boring, or you can read all of these things and say, hey, there's something important being said here. There's a common theme here that Paul wants to hammer home. Goodness. What an important thing that is in the life of a Christian. What an important thing that is in the life of a church. What an important thing that is if we are to be a faithful representation of the body of Christ and in proclaiming his gospel. Goodness. It appears again in verse 8 of chapter 3. Things that are good and profitable. Maintaining good works and then it appears one final time again in verse 14. It's very helpful sometimes when you're reading through portions of Scripture and things like these little letters can be particularly helpful. Just look for these common things that keep occurring, keep occurring, keep occurring. There's something being said here. I, I really need to pause and think about this. Consider it. Uh, look at how... It's supposed to apply to me in my situation today. Concentrate on those things which are good. That's how you avoid disputes. It's actually quite simple. Concentrate on everything that is good. Only do things that are good. Only say things that are good. Things that benefit people. Things that build people up. It's difficult to dispute with people when that's going on all around you, when that's being exampled to you. And what do we mean by good? Well, of course, those things that are pleasing to God, those things which are according to his word, things that are wholesome and edifying for the body of Christ and therefore are profitable to us. Profitable to the proclamation of the gospel. We'll be better gospel proclaimers. Profitable to godly living. Living out these truths more faithfully, vitally, vibrantly. 
profitable to obedience to God and his word, profitable to spiritual growth and maturity, profitable to our understanding and application of doctrine in our lives. Everything which pleases the Lord our God. Concentrate on things that are good and profitable. And disputes will be few and far between. Now, one of the main tasks of elders, therefore, because, of course, the very first thing that is mentioned in the opening chapter is that elders need to be appointed in every local church because at the moment on Crete there were none. One of the reasons they are needed is to prevent churches from becoming distracted or sidetracked by matters which are debatable but unprofitable. Matters which may well be of interest to certain people, but they won't really do the body any good. And you can see from verse 9 that these are mainly things which are being spoken about and taught in the life of these churches on the island of Crete. Disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law. This is all to do with the, the spoken word. It's all to do with the spoken word. And this is why the teaching of God's word through preaching is so important, because what shapes and guides and directs a church is God's truth. And so that's where the emphasis has to be, and this will help to keep disputes down when the word of God is being clearly and faithfully proclaimed and applied into our lives. Now, for some Christians, of course, the emphasis seems to be all on the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we cannot and we do not deny the necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit, both in individual believers and in local churches, amongst us corporately. Of course, Paul specifically mentions the work of the Holy Spirit in chapter 3, back in verse 5. We've been regenerated and renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit. If it were not for his work in us, we wouldn't even be Christians in the first place. But the work of the Holy Spirit is not something mystical. It's not something that you can't define. The work of the Holy Spirit is to bring about in us the change that's required. And it begins with regeneration and new birth within. That's his work. But then he leads us on into God's truth. He leads us on into the truths and commandments of Christ and of the gospel. Now we're relying upon the Holy Spirit for all of these things. But the tool that he works with in our lives is not just the Spirit himself in some mystical way. But the work of the Spirit is to bring to us the things of Christ. And the work of the Spirit is to bring to us the things of the Word. Hence the emphasis upon the Word and sound doctrine and being teachers of good things. Now the Holy Spirit is vital in all of that. But it's through those things that the Holy Spirit works. So, listen to the words of Jesus, for example, 
in John 18, first of all, from verse 31. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You have to abide in, live in, put yourselves into these great truths that I'm speaking to you about. And you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you'll be free indeed. Free from what? Free from the slavery of sin. What sets men and women free from the slavery of sin? It's the truth of God's word. It's the truth of the gospel being proclaimed and received by faith. When Jesus is praying that wonderful prayer in chapter 17 of John, he prays to his Father for Christian disciples like you and me, sanctify them. Continue that work in them, setting them apart for holy and royal service, making them fit to be ambassadors for Christ, making them to be everything that men of God should be. Sanctify them. How? By the Spirit? No. By your truth. Your word is truth. It's the truth of the word that changes people. The Holy Spirit, that's what he does. He brings the truth of the word to bear upon your heart and your mind. Change you. Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What your mind needs is truth, biblical truth. Teach the things, not the things that are unprofitable and of no use. Teach and preach the things that are good and profitable. Things that will do everybody good. Now, the things that are mentioned in verse 9, they refer specifically to the, the context in which Titus finds himself. Uh, we see very clearly that most of these issues are, are linked to the Jewish traditions that the believers on Crete come from. But in and of themselves, they're not really things that you would describe as sinful but they are described as foolish and unprofitable. That's something to take note of, isn't it? It might be something that's legitimate in a way to discuss, but is it going to be profitable? Is it going to be useful? There's a real guide and help for us here in thinking these things through. How will this topic or theme profit me as a believer how will it profit us as a church how will it profit spiritual growth how will it profit our witness in the world how will this enable me to know God's will better how will it enable me to stand fast in the world out there because it's tough 
How will this help me to see and know Christ better and to love him and serve him more faithfully? How will this assist me in living a life that's pleasing to God, things that are profitable? How will this help us as, as a church to understand the doctrines of grace and to, and to live them out? Or is this particular topic or theme or whatever it is, is it just a bit of a sideshow, really? And it's just going to be a distraction. Unnecessarily contentious, maybe. With so much potential to divide and to cause problems amongst us. And Paul's exhortation is avoid them. Just avoid them. Just don't go down that road. Because you can end up like some vehicles end up as they're following their sat-nav and the driver's so busy following the sat-nav he's not paying a blind bit of notice to where he's actually driving and finds himself in a, in a real mess. Stick to the main road. You've seen those road signs, unsuitable for certain vehicles. It's usually unsuitable for heavy vehicles or unsuitable for goods vehicles but you decide to turn onto it anyway now you're not banned from that road it's not illegal to drive down it but it's ill-advised why because it probably will not profit your journey you're likely to get yourself into a real pickle if you go down that road in that kind of vehicle so don't go there avoid it stick to what is going to be profitable and here the elders in churches have an important role to play in navigating through these things this will be profitable this mm, not so much this there's no profit in that at all don't put that on your agenda. Just don't worry about it. Just put that to one side. Things good, profitable. That's what we need to keep turning to. I'm greatly encouraged when sometimes people in the church will come to me, or I know sometimes they've maybe gone to one of the other elders. Have you heard of so-and-so? What do you think? Is it something I should consider? Is it a book I should read? Is that an author I should have on my bookshelf? Is that a man I should listen to? Because uh, he's got some sermons on YouTube. Is, is that a voice I should be listening to? It's great when people ask questions like that. Good. What is good? What is profitable? Or what actually is, will be useless and unprofitable? Will do me no good. And you see, when we start to concentrate together on all the things that are good, all the things that are profitable, everything that will edify and build us up, you'll find that disputes tend to die away. No disputes. And to avoid them, you just focus on everything that is good and profitable. And if it isn't, you're just happy to leave it to one side. Stay on the main road. Keep safe. No disputes. 
The second thing is in the next verse, 10. And into 11, firm discipline. Firm discipline. Now, I've used the word firm. I thought about that word for a while. I came up with a couple of other options, but I've decided to stick with firm. But let me just say something first, though. When I say firm, I'm not talking about brutish, thuggish discipline. I'm not talking about like being in the boot camp in the army. When I mean firm discipline, I mean have men who, when they apply it, don't back down. And they see it through to the end. Firm discipline. Now, I'm very pleased to say that the vast majority of church members will, will never need to experience for themselves, personally, verses 10 and 11. But we need to recognise together as a local church that when, when things do creep into churches, if they creep into churches, the Bible itself tells us how they need to be dealt with and what the response ought to be. So that when the elders do respond, you're not up in arms about it and saying, what on earth's going on? Because you know you're actually ready, waiting for the elders to do it. Because it has to be done. And the elders are those men primarily who need to be doing it. Now he talks about rejecting a divisive man after the first and the second admonition. And for those of you who are familiar with the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, you'll already have recognised in your own mind the similarities between what Jesus says in that portion of God's word in Matthew 18. Verse 15, Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Reject him. From the church, from the fellowship of the church. That's Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 18. And when we consider the picture that's presented to us in this letter from Paul to Titus, think about what was going on back in the first chapter in verses 10 to 11. We can see there that there are divisive people who've been in the churches on the island of Crete. They've been given a platform and they've gained a foothold within the life of churches there. And we can see there that they're, they're subverting whole households. And a very big lack in these churches has been the rebuke of such people. There's been no one there to do it. And exercising and applying discipline in the church has to be done faithfully and consistently. And of particular importance is dealing with those who would cause splits and factions within the church. And they must be stopped so that the rot can't continue. Now the subverting of whole households that's mentioned, perhaps that was actually the intention of some of those people who were on the island. They've actually come in order to create division. 
They've come to establish their own little group of followers and supporters and, and then they've, they're starting to gather some momentum. Perhaps they actually want to create fractures in churches, raise doubts and cause tensions which they can then exploit for themselves. And the harmony and the unity of churches is such an important thing. We're so very grateful to the Lord for the relative unity that we've known here in Belvedere in recent years. That's not to say we've had no issues or problems and we're far from being a perfect church, but aren't we thankful for the lack of big, loud disputes that are causing issues and tensions amongst the Lord's people? But when, but when that is threatened... Action has to be taken. And through the teaching of the word and with the word, of our author, uh, the word as our authority, there needs to be rebuke and correction and a call to repentance. And it has to be applied firmly in churches. And we remember the great exhortation at the beginning of Galatians chapter 6 that it be done in a spirit of gentleness. being described as a bar of steel wrapped in velvet. <laughs> firm but with gentleness and with grace. But firm. The church of Christ's at stake. The reputation of the gospel's at stake. And if change isn't forthcoming... That, as that individual is spoken to, it kind of escalates up. It starts off one-to-one -one and the elders will get involved and then it ends up being taken to the whole church. This person is threatening our unity. This person is refusing to respond to the exhortations that we're bringing to them to repent and to stop what they're doing. We've opened up the word of God to them to show them their error. And still they persist. That's, that's the kind of situation that's being brought to our attention here where it talks about this divisive man after these different admonitions who continues. And if there is still no change, the believer is rejected. They are to be removed from the fellowship of the church. Why? Verse 11. Why? Well, there's something radically wrong with them. They're warped. That's a pretty powerful word, isn't it? They're warped. Sinning. Being self-condemned. Maybe they actually enjoy being divisive. Some people do. Maybe they enjoy the attention that it gets them. Some people do. Maybe they just like a fight. Some people do. Maybe they love to start, start arguments. Some people do. They're like spiritual arsonists lighting fires in the church. Well, that, that's gone on completely unchecked on the island of Crete. And they're in a dreadful mess. But... 
You see, if we love one another, if we have a real concern for one another in the Lord, if we have a real desire for one another to remain in the faith and to grow and to mature, if we want local churches to be places where baby Christians are nurtured in a wholesome, loving atmosphere, we have to have an awareness of these things constantly at the back of our minds. And as elders, we're constantly, I've got antenna going everywhere all the time. We have to. It's important. The Lord's people are at stake. And there can be no hesitation in, in removing people like that from the, the fellowship of the church. It's, it's not a pleasant task necessarily, but the unity of the church and the honour of the name of Christ is at stake here. And it has to be done to preserve sound doctrine because the teaching of the truth the teaching of the truth is what sanctifies the Lord's people. And that can't be hindered. If politicians don't balk at such things in order to preserve political ideals and agendas, how much more diligent should we be when the gospel and the church of Christ are at stake? It's important, isn't it? But we all have to be aware of these things together. It's a corporate thing, something we all do together. And then there's the need for personal devotion in verse 14. Personal devotion. Let our people learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Do you remember the out? pouring of grief over the death of Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. Why? Because she was such a woman of great devotion. The things that the Lord had laid on her heart to do good works that she did. An outpouring of the grace of Christ from this dear, dear believer. And when the Lord took her from them, the widows especially, they were broken hearted that she'd been taken from them. She was known for making clothes, particularly for the, the women in great need. If you were a widow and you had no family to look after you in New Testament Palestine, you were in a pretty desperate situation. And she loved them, she cared for them, she provided for them, she made clothes for them. She didn't produce the odd dress here and there. Those ladies were holding armfuls of all the garments she'd made for them. Look what she did. Overflowing with devotion towards us. Dorcas didn't just sit down at her sewing machine when she just found she had the odd few minutes here and there. Those dresses and tunics and goodness knows what else, they were flying off her machine. She was a one-woman dressmaking machine. On and on and on she went. She gave herself to it. She was devoted to it. What did Dorcas get back? Nothing, apparently. Except an unparalleled reputation for a godly Christian woman of good works. A heart overflowing with the love and grace of Christ. She's described as being full of good works. Isn't that a wonderful description? 
I can't think of many better things to say about any believer. Full of good works. Such has been the grace of God within them and the work of his spirit. Charitable deeds. She gave herself to it. She was abundantly fruitful in what she did. She made time. She set aside time. Gave probably from her own resources. Did she sometimes have to lay to one side needs of her own to meet an urgent need? Well, probably. Did she give herself to it with a full and glad heart? I think she did. And how they grieved when the Lord took her. Meeting urgent needs. Ready to drop anything and everything for someone in distress. But it's learned. It's learned. The local church is a place of learning. Learning doctrine. And what it means in practice in your life out there and in here. Learning the truth of God's word. Learning what it means to pray. Learning what it means to be full of good works. Learning. Always learning. Hence the opening verses of chapter 2. About the older men and the older women. And the vital role that every single one of you has to play. What quite is the age limit where you become older and no longer younger? You can decide. But if you're not yet one of the older ones, if the Lord spares you, you will one day be. It's all of us. All of us. Those who've done the learning, now doing the teaching. Because the church is a constant place of learning. And learning through the vital input of God's Spirit in our lives, learning as we open up the Word of God, learning as we look around and we see godly examples that we can look up to and emulate and follow, <coughs> learning through instruction, learning through the receiving of God's Word into our lives, learning those things that are good, learning those things that are profitable, learning those things which build up and edify. That's the kind of church that puts a smile on the face of our Saviour. I want to just finish by reading a few verses, a few lines from one of the other letters that Paul wrote. The Ephesian church was close to Paul's heart. He wrote a letter to them. It says this in the fourth chapter. Christ has given some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, a mature woman, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. Don't we want that for one another? That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but 
speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The church is on Crete, we're in a real mess. And if we'll take to heart the letter of Paul to Titus, this local church, for one, need never be like that. Because all that we are concerned about is everything that's good, everything that's profitable, and everything that is to the glory and honour of our great God and Saviour the Lord Jesus Christ and with his help may we be so